Hey everyone, this is Benjamin Norton and you are watching Multipolarista. And today we are going to be talking about Puerto Rico. Today is February 17th. And in the past two weeks, there have been ver very large protests in Puerto Rico against neoliberal austerity measures that have been imposed on the U.S. colony by the Fiscal Control Board. This is a financial oversight board that was created by the Obama administration that controls Puerto Rico's finances. And we've seen that people in Puerto Rico, millions of people have been struggling with starvation wages, poverty wages. And in the past few weeks, there were massive protests led by public sector workers, largely by teachers. There were reports that around 70% of teachers walked out of their classroom to demand higher wages, more pensions, better work protections, also firemen and other government workers. So today we're joined by an excellent guest who knows firsthand how these protests have been going. We are speaking with Angel Rodriguez Rivera, who is the president of the Puerto Rican Association of Uni University Professors. And he is actually a professor at the University of Puerto Rico, where there have been protests going on against these austerity measures. And, and Angel, let's begin with talking with, about these protests. The latest numbers I saw is that public school teachers in Puerto Rico have not had the minimum wage risen for 13 years. Meanwhile, we've, in, the, in the entire world, we've all been talking about this increasing crisis of inflation. So the actual purchasing power that wages have in Puerto Rico continues to go down and down every year. But in 13 years, the minimum wage for public school teachers has even increased. So do you think that's one of the main reasons people have been oh, protesting? That's one of the main reasons, very importantly, one of the main reasons. I want to start saying that we are dressed alike. We didn't talk about it beforehand, so it's just a coincidence that we both wearing black shirts. So it's got nothing to do with the <laughs> protests in Puerto Rico. Indeed, what you're saying is completely true. Uh, public school teachers have a base salary of about 15, $15 to $1,700 a month. If you compare that to any of the states or territories of the United States, it's really a poverty <clears throat> salary that the teachers have. On top of the salary, that lack of good salaries that teachers have, the pension plans that they had have been changed, have been privatized, leaving those teachers that cannot save any money through all their 30 years of service, 25, 30 years of service, to live in a dignified manner after they retire. So what we had is we've, we've had an explosion of those public school teachers, very spontaneous, although not completely spontaneous protests. Last week, about 30 to 50, 30, around 30,000 public school teachers took the streets and they, <clears throat> they marched all over the island. They went to the governor's house to protest and they actually won that one. They're gonna, they're supposedly gonna get a thousand dollar a month raise starting in July. But they're not the only ones that are on the streets. You have public employees who are doing the same thing. Public employees, they probably get paid less than public school teachers, $1,200, $1,100 a month. You got college professors who are not tenure, who are uh, not regular tenure professors who are making $1,400 a month. So we have a problem in terms of the quality of life and how we're going to get through Although Puerto Rico is one of the most expensive territories in the United States, you got those low, low wages that create uh, a perfect 
storm for this for so for what's happening in Puerto Rico to happen again. Uh, and, and it's probably going to happen again tomorrow because we have some marches tomorrow. Yeah, and you mentioned something very important, which is that, you know, Puerto Rico is a territory or a colony. Territory is a euphemism of the United States. And yeah. in Puerto Rico, the prices are very similar or in some cases even higher than in many other parts of the United States. But the salaries are way, way lower. And this is incredible to me. It's an example of how imagine if Utah or Texas or like one of these big states that especially big states that have like very large right wing populations. Imagine if they were told that they had to work for these starvation poverty wages. They would they would think this is crazy and outlandish and authoritarian. But when it's in a U.S. colony where the majority of people, you know, are not white, they're of African and Latino descent and indigenous descent, like th this <clears throat> is not even questioned. The idea that they don't deserve anywhere yeah. near the same wages as in the continental U.S. Of course. And, and think about this. The per capita income in Puerto Rico is about one third of that of Mississippi, which is the poorest state of the nation. So we're talking about one third of the per capita income in Mississippi. So it's important for people who don't live in Puerto Rico to think about that, what's happening. That does not mean that Puerto Rico is cheap. Puerto Rico is also, as you said, very expensive. So what's happening is that that colonial relationship leads to people not paying attention to what's happening. And you see other things that are very important, but probably not as important in terms of human rights like that happening in some other places and people don't pay attention to what's happening right here. And in the U.S. backyard, as, as I like to say. Yeah, or uh, Joe Biden recently referred to Latin America as the U.S. so-called front yard, which was a very yeah, bizarre yeah. comment. It shows this, this colonial mentality. I, he was trying to distinguish himself from Trump and say that Trump saw Latin America as the U.S. backyard. And, but apparently Biden thought that front yard yeah. would make it better, but it's still, he still sees it as the U.S. property. I mean, the U.S. yard, right? I, I thought it was very cynical. I tend to believe that he cannot be that dumb. He knew what he was saying. Plus, there's a whole lot of people who knew that knew what he was going to say, and they still let him say it. So I, in my opinion, he really knew what he was going to say, and he said it because he actually believed it. And there is some truth to that, some colonial truth to that. But we are seeing the problems with that colonial truth. Yeah, and I want to bring a topic up that we talked about last time, and that is related to the the, the rising living costs in Puerto Rico. And that is that the U.S. federal government has been encouraging these policies of basically tax flight. So rich people who spend 51% of their days or like half of the year plus one day in Puerto Rico, they, they have all of these tax benefits because they can say they're a resident of Puerto Rico. And basically it's a way for rich people to avoid paying taxes. So not only does that lead to massive gentrification of of puerto rico where you know people are being forced out of their homes because all these rich developers want to make fancy condos for tech billionaire or not not billionaires but these these tech investors they're not all billionaires but there are some billionaires there yeah. but so what that also does is not only does it lead to gentrification but it also leads to rising living costs overall of course then you got a lot of people working people working working class people in puerto rico that they try to go out and buy a house. They cannot buy a house because when people come speculating with their capital and buy houses and they pay cash 
for those houses. People who are selling their houses, they actually prefer to be paid in cash immediately. And that makes a whole lot of sense. But that means that Puerto Ricans who are going to try because they need to have a, a, a house, they cannot do it because prices of houses go up immediately. Not only in terms of gentrificating uh, the gentrification of, of different <clears throat> cities here in Puerto Rico, but even people who just want to buy, uh, buy houses to do business with their houses, create Airbnbs. And those are houses that are needed by some a lot of Puerto Ricans that are not able to pay for it. So you, you get low wages, and then you get these laws trying to attract rich people into Puerto Rico without paying taxes, who actually raise the, 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 the cost of living on the island. Because even when they get here, they go to different supermarkets. Those supermarkets cater to those people, rich people. They raise their prices meaning that Puerto Ricans who live around those same neighborhoods cannot buy in the same places because they cannot afford it. Not only they cannot afford the houses, but they cannot afford whatever they need to live in a, in a place like that. And it's a real problem. And we're seeing that we, we're getting some uh, settlements, rich people settlements in Puerto Rico in different areas that are basically areas that from now on, no Puerto Rican will be able to live there because we cannot afford it. Yeah, and let's talk more about your role as president of the Puerto Rican Association of University Professors. You all have been involved in this campaign demanding better pay, better rights. Can you talk about how the, the austerity measures imposed by what is effectively, I mean, a kind of colonial junta. In fact, you know, we talked about this last time, the... the the association of the word junta in Spanish is very often used to refer to a kind of military dictatorship, but it's also the same word used to refer to the financial oversight board and management board imposed by the Obama administration. Well, I should say the Obama Biden administration, as it's now known, on yeah, Puerto know. Rico. So what what kind of how have you all been hurt by the austerity measures imposed by this board? First, I'm going to start saying that we got, and I think I already said it, but I'm going to repeat it because I think it's very important. We got college professors. Most of our college professors here in Puerto Rico are trained. They studied in the United States. They studied in Europe. They studied in the most prestigious universities, Ivy League universities. And they get to Puerto Rico. They try to find jobs at the University of Puerto Rico, which is the most prestigious university here. And some of them are getting paid $1,400 a month. So think about it. You go to the United States, you study at Cornell, Cornell University, you study at Harvard, you study uh, any other prestigious university in, Puerto, in the United States. You go to the Complutense, Universidad Complutense in Madrid, very prestigious university, and then you get back to Puerto Rico because you want to work in Puerto Rico because you're Puerto Rican. And then you get paid $1,400 a month. $1,400 a month with a PhD. Uh, I'm not yeah, saying- and, and Sorry to cut you off, Angel, but this is also, we should keep in mind that if you went to some of these fancy schools, especially if instead of having a PhD, you have a master's because a lot of PhDs are funded, but most master's programs are not funded. Yeah. So let's say it's a two year master's program at Harvard and each year is $60,000 and you have over $100,000 in student debt, but then you get paid $1,400. $1,400 to be a college professor, to, be, to work in academia, to do research, to publish papers, to teach your classes, $1,400. So... So what's happening after the fiscal <clears throat> control 
junta, what they did is the budget for the University of Puerto Rico is supposed to be, the money from the, the government is supposed to be 9.4% of the budget of the government of Puerto Rico, which is more or less what most states of the United States use for the public university systems around 9.2 to 9.7%. So that's, what's, what, that's what the University of Puerto Rico is supposed to get from the government. And as of now, that would be around $960 million to a billion dollars, something like that. After the Fiscal Oversight Board got to Puerto Rico, as of now, what we're getting from the government is around $369 million. So you get in a period of six, seven years from $960 million to $369 million. So the problem is that in academia, and what they say is that the university should look for outside funding like research. And I keep saying, well, you know what? To do research, you need to invest in research. To do research, you need to invest in intellectual ability. To do research, you need to attract the best minds that are able to do that research. But if you're paying $1,400 a month, and if you're cutting the budget of the University of Puerto Rico, it's almost impossible to do research that can limit the problems caused by dust cuts in the budget of the University of Puerto Rico, leading the, a university that it's not functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning. We're limiting the amount of students that we can uh, accept into the University of Puerto Rico. We got the main campus, which is the Rio Piedras campus, which is very close to where I live, very close to where I'm talking to, where I'm talking to you from now. I remember when I was a student back in 1990, beginning of the 1990s, I got into university in 1988, beginning of the 1990s, there was 22,000 students at that campus. There's only 11,000 students now. When I started teaching at the University of Puerto Rico, one of the smaller campuses, we had 4,500 students at that campus. Now we have 2,100 students because we don't have resources to accept more students because if we need to teach more classes, we don't have professors to teach those classes because we cannot pay those professors. So we're watching how that most prestigious university in Puerto Rico, which is the University of Puerto Rico, which is state university, most prestigious by far, the most productive university by far in Puerto Rico, is not even getting the attention it needs because what they're doing is cutting the budget, not to use it in some other service, government services that are also needed, but to use it to pay the debt, the structural debt that Puerto Rico had, that still has, uh, and, and that's what we're doing now. We're taking money. The budget, the government budget has not shrinked. It's still about $10 billion a year. So we're spending the same amount of money. We're just spending in, spending it in a different way. We're not spending it in health services. We're not spending it in educational services. We're not spending it at the University of Puerto Rico. So what we're doing is just paying the debt and not paying attention to those, what I call essential services. Yeah. And, and if I can add, I'll say it's not even actually paying the debt. It's paying the interest on the it, debt. Exactly. It's paying the interest. It, that, that debt will never be paid. It's impossible to pay it. It's a, um, 
some of that debt is actually illegal. I mean, when, when they accept the payment, what they're doing is basically laundering money because if the debt was illegal, you're not supposed to pay it. If you start paying it, you're accepting an illegal element and making it legal in the process, which is by definition what we call laundering money. Yeah, and actually, I'm really glad you mentioned this because there's been a little discussion in the past few weeks of Argentina's odious debt, which, I mean, of course, I'm glad to see people talking about that because, you know, Argentina has been trapped in this odious IMF debt, over $44 billion of debt, and that was debt taken on by this corrupt right-wing president, Mauricio Macri, this multimillionaire who used that money to fund his friends' companies and bribe people and and even the IMF itself published a report last December acknowledging that the largest IMF bailout in history in Argentina in 2018 completely failed to stabilize the economy. But what's interesting is that although there's a little discussion, certainly not enough discussion of that in Argentina, there's even less discussion of that in Puerto Rico, which is a co colony of the United States where people are, I mean, they are North Americans, politically speaking, like they're U.S. Americans, but there's, there's, I mean, it just always shocks me how dehumanized Puerto Rico is as a U.S. citizen. And, and, and it's interesting because since Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, it's not even an external debt. Latin America has external debt. Uh, like you said, Argenti Argentina, it's about $44 billion. Puerto Rico's debt is about $73 billion, but it's not an external debt. It's internal, just, just like the U.S. debt. So what it means is that that debt is acquired through selling bonds. But nevertheless, it's, it was $73 billion, but those hedge funds that were paying the $73 billion did not pay $73 billion for that debt. They bought the debt and they paid about 10 cents, 15 cents, 20 cents per dollar. And now we have to pay about $50 billion who creates a huge amount of benefit, a huge amount of surplus in terms of what the people of Puerto Rico are paying. So what we have a problem now is that we're being we're being jailed by those hedge funds who took over that debt. So even though it's not 73, $73 billion anymore, they're still charging, charging us $73 billion. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting about that. The discussion of Argentina's debt is the president, Alberto Fernandez, did something very interesting. He decided to take a trip to Russia and China. And he told Russia, he said, we're trying to decrease our dependence on the United States and the IMF. And of course, then he went to China and he incorporated Argentina into the Belt and Road Initiative, which freaked out Washington. The U.S. government went crazy and said that, you know, what's going on here? It's our backyard. But I mean, Puerto Rico can't do that. We can't do that. Exactly. We can't do that. And I may I may have my problems with China. I may have my problems with Russia. Actually, I have a lot of problems with both of them. And that got nothing to do with, with, with the debt problem. But even as a bargaining chip, it works very good as a bargaining chip. I mean, if you're not going to do anything because since we're a colony of the United States, our debt is also your debt. I mean, we're supposed to tell the U.S. government, my debt, you allowed it because we're a colony and because those financial companies were making money and those were American financial companies and you allow that debt, it's your debt too. We can't even. We don't even have a bargaining chip. I mean, we can't go to Russia and say, hey, "Let me do something. Let's work something together here." And they go back to Mr. Biden and say, "Yo, Biden, what's up? 
We're doing something with Putin. And if you don't like it, we might work something out with you. We can't even do that. We're not allowed to do that. Fact of the matter is, we're not, we're so not allowed to do that that they created the fiscal monetary board, the fiscal control monetary board, making it impossible to do anything about it. So, but because what they're doing, what they they got here just to collect the debt. They're debt collectors. And I want to talk about protests going on actually today. Today is February 17th. I'm going to share some videos on Twitter of these workers who are protesting. I believe they're electrical workers. It's uh, ProSol Utier. They're actually, uh, they're government employees. They're related to the electrical workers, which is Utier. This a uh, 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 union related to the ones for the electrical workers. And I was right there with them today. Perfect. So I'm going to play a brief clip here of a protest going on. And this is a protester who was arrested. And you see these heavily militarized police with all this riot gear, which of course costs thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. And there, here's more video of these protesters doing a, they're doing a sit-in protest and being harassed by the police, being arrested. And in fact, there's another video I wanted to get up here of some brutal violence, some police brutality, basically, of them tasering this, this worker here who was just protesting in Puerto Rico. So you said you were with those workers today. Can you talk about the situation? You, you know what? Actually, it's very interesting because those videos <clears throat> that you show there, and that protest today, what they were asking for, for better salaries, uh, pension plans, basically, that's basically what they're asking for. Those are employees that make about $1,100 a month. So that's, first of all, it's important to look at that and, and think about that. Second, that protest, there was about 10 uh, workers there. 10 workers, that's most, most, to be, that, that's very early in the morning. Do you have about 10 workers there? And you have, you have about 200 police officers, including those heavily armed police officers. <laughs> Uh, and, and I kept saying, I actually told the cops, what are you afraid of? Man? What, what are you talking about, man? You got guns, you got everything. There's only so few of us. What's the matter with you? Interestingly, the, the cops were in the last few days that were insinuating that we're going to take the streets to protest because they're not getting paid enough. And they actually talked to some of us to see if we agree to go out with them. Well, you know, that's not going to happen after today, right? <laughs> there is no way in heck that we're going to do that. I mean, if you're going to arrest me because we're asking what you want to ask, uh, we're not going to be together in the same protest. So you have about 10 workers, hundreds of cops, heavily armed, uh, tactical operation, tasing, using tases, everything on the books, everything you see in the movies when you're not supposed, something that you see that's happening when we talk about dictatorship in other places that we don't think about Puerto Rico in that way because we're a colony of the United States and obviously we learn our democracy from the United States. So, and that only has only created, we have some very, well, what I expect to be very massive protests tomorrow. I'm expecting uh, tens of thousands of people taking the streets tomorrow. So, Instead of doing something intelligent, which is pay attention to what those workers, there were very few of them today, what the government does is they send the police and arrest five of them, actually. They're still under arrest. 
they're they were arrested about eight o'clock in the morning they're still under arrest as of now they're being charged with different crimes i don't know exactly the crimes they're going to charge them with but they are being charged with different crimes so what that has created is more animosity amongst the population so the government is not even being smart about what they're doing they're trying to control the situation but what they're doing is escalating the situation because of the animosity and because people actually those those budget cuts that financial policy that the fiscal board is trying to has been implementing there gets that gets to a point where people actually feel it people actually think about wow i don't have enough money to put gas in my car as of now we're paying about a dollar per liter of gas which in the united states you use gallons is about four dollars a gallon of gas gasoline which is very expensive for any state in the united states it's very expensive I mean, maybe not new york not new york city not uh los angeles california so what's that's what's happening that animosity act actually is keeps escalating because of the way the police works with different protests and i have here i'm, I'm trying to find uh if you give me a second here the u.s department of justice does the, the civil rights division did an investigation about how the police <clears throat> police in puerto rico works and what they found is and i have the the report right here it was started in september 5 2011 and what they found is that the, the police in puerto rico are actually targeting political protest actually targeting political protesters in, in in terms of how they act whenever there is a protest protest going on so we we actually it's not something that just happened it's something that is systematically happening on the island yeah and it's just so striking to see public sector workers these are government workers protesting over low, extremely low starvation wages meanwhile the government sends out dozens and dozens of heavily armed police with riot gear that costs more than they make in like three months. Actually, it costs more than what the cop makes in three months. <laughs> so, actually, the cops should think about that. Say, my God, I'm wearing some gear that costs more. It's more than my salary. Uh, so it's very contradictory when you say we don't have enough money to pay for better salaries for government employees, but we do have for police gear, although it costs more than the way we would have uh, used to pay good salaries. Um, Angel, have you seen, there's this, there's this militarization of police in the continental United States we've seen where, you know, protesters against police brutality or protesters against war, progressive protesters, especially if they're largely black and Latino, they're often facing down like armored vehicles and oh, yeah. basically tanks in the streets. Have you seen that kind of militariz militarization oh, of police in Puerto Rico? Oh, completely, Rico? completely, completely. I mean, uh, when you get a cold in the United States, we got pneumonia in Puerto Rico, which is that's basically what's happening. All those things that you see in different states of the United States, they get magnified in Puerto Rico. And that you see that militarization of the police which is actually what's been happening. And that's why the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice uh, had to do this investigation because we've had so many cases like that. We've had so many instances 
of people being abused, being really abused, or not only oppressed, but really abused by the cops and by the different divisions of the, the police department in Puerto Rico. Uh, because it's stopped being elements of civil servants, stopped being elements of civil service to become a military entity. And military entities don't know how to deal with people. They're not trained to deal with people. Cops are supposed to be trained to deal with people in the escalate elements, the escalate situation. Then when you have 10 protesters and 150, 200 cops, well, it's never going to be de-escalated that, that way. And that's not their interest. Yeah, well, this brings me to a topic I wanted to address, which uh, might be a little controversial to people because there's been this debate strongly over this so-called uh, freedom convoy in Canada. And, you know, I don't want to spend a ton of time getting into the weeds about that. But there's what's striking about that is that, you know, I, I wrote an article showing how this this convoy, which is actually not led by truckers and actually all of the major truckers unions in Canada, including Teamsters, have come out against it. The Canadian Labor Congress, which is a group of unions, came out against it. Uh, the Trucking Association came out against it. 90% of truckers are vaccinated. So, I mean, it's very clear that this is not led by most truckers and that actually there's a lot of right-wing networks. There's a lot of money coming in from conservative networks in the United States, including Donald Trump's network, Steve, Steve Bannon's group. But I mean, that aside, I don't want to focus on that today. But what I do want to point out is the incredible hypocrisy because there's been like wall-to-wall -wall coverage of this convoy constantly, every single day for weeks. And this convoy in Canada has been pretty small, honestly. Meanwhile, we see massive protests going on in Puerto Rico, which again, I need to stress, is a U.S. colony, a so-called territory. <laughs> Canada is not a U.S. territory, although the U.S. treats it like a territory as well. But, yeah, know, right? <laughs> but Canada is another country. Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. I mean, it's colonized, but it's part of the U.S. And there's almost no coverage of no these massive protests going on by people who are citizens of the United States against these brutal austerity policies, but there are, there is, there's constant non-wall-to-wall -wall coverage in Canada, and there's all these foreign journalists in Canada, and I mean, I don't know if you want to comment on that hypocrisy. It's kind of my, the point I was making, but it just yeah, seems it, very striking to me. Yeah, it is, it is, and, and, and uh, tell you the truth, I think there is a myth in some areas in the United States that there is some liberal media and some conservative media. And I think that's a myth. Uh, what people call liberal media, and I looked at them, I watched the news every day, I read the newspapers online, actually. I try to do it online. Uh, I watch the news. I watch the so-called liberal uh, media outlets like MSNBC, CNN. They're supposed to be liberal. And I keep looking. I said, wow, they're not liberal whatsoever. It's a good thing I don't call myself a liberal, right? I don't. I don't believed to be a liberal i'm, I'm, I'm well yeah but they're, they're liberal in the sense in latin america where, where liberal is a right winger if you're a exactly. liberal exactly and that's and you see stuff like that and that's what's happening i mean those elements and i don't want to talk bad against any other people who try to do something but they're not really threatening actually so that you can cover it it's not threatening when you cover something that you have 40 50 60 70,000 people taking the street here in Puerto Rico or any other place in Latin America that might be, might be threatening because those people, when they take the streets in Puerto Rico, they know that the fiscal monetary board has something to do with the way they're living. That has something to do with the low wages. That has something to do with 
the difficulties they have to buy food, their difficulties they're having to get a good house, their difficulties they're, they're having to get the, their, their kids to college, their difficulties they're having to get good education for their kids. And that's more, a lot more threatening than other things. I mean, it's a lot easier to cover something that has to do with not wanting to get vaccinated. Uh, you can cover something that let me, let me cross the street this way and not that way. And everybody's got a right to fight for something. And I don't blame anybody for that. But there are protests and there are protests. Uh, remember Animal Farm? All animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. And that's probably what's happening. And that so-called liberal media, because we have, when, when the, that liberal media calls, calls the other media conservative, you know that the other one is really conservative. The other one might be reactionary, not only conservative, because that liberal media is not liberal whatsoever, unless we use that definition that I agree with you. That you use. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of this, actually, speaking of uh, liberals continuing these colonialist policies, I, I want to get up an article that was published in NBC or as uh, this the, is the, liberal media, right? the liberal media. MS this is an article they just published on February 11th. It's actually from the Associated Press, but republished by NBC. It's called Rights Groups. Biden should disavow racist rulings against Puerto Rico territories. And it talks about this century old su Supreme Court ruling called the insular cases. Insular cases. Yeah. And a, a U.S. justice said that territories, that is colonies, are, quote, inhabited by alien races and therefore <laughs> don't have the same rights. So this is just really quickly to, su to summarize it for people who don't know. This is a campaign that was being led by 13 different groups including the ACLU and, and other groups fighting for uh, racial justice, fighting against colonialism. And they are protesting this and calling for this, this 100 year, over 100 year old, these, these insular cases that go back to 1901 that came right after the, the 1898 Spanish-American War in which the US waged a war against Spain and took Puerto Rico as a colony. And the Supreme Court referred to Puerto Rico and also the Philippines and also the Virgin Islands and other U.S. colonies as territories, quote, inhabited by alien races and said the United States can, quote, can seize, quote, an unknown island peopled with an uncivilized race. C can you comment on this? This is still on the books. Yeah. Can I comment? Should I comment without cursing? <laughs> Go ahead and curse all you want. <laughs> well, you know, that kind of reminds me. I don't know if I told you that this the last time we talked. My mother was raised in the United States. She was raised basically in the South. She was raised mostly in Georgia, uh, Columbus, Georgia, uh, Black, uh, Afro-Puerto Rican in Columbus, Georgia. And then 19, she was born in 1947. She was born in Puerto Rico, then moved to the States very young because my grandfather was in the Army. And she used to tell me this story that she was in school. She was about third grade. So this must have been about 1955, 1956, something like that. And she was reading a history book about Latin America. And one of the books says that Puerto Rico is a very good place to make a country. The problem was it was a beautiful place, but the only problem it had was the Puerto Ricans that lived on the island. And she, she, she used to tell me this. She says that she started crying when she read this because she knew that she was Puerto Rican. She didn't speak any Spanish or anything like that, but she was Puerto Rican. Uh, 
So that kind of gives you an ideological element of what that insular case is created in the United States. One of the things those insular cases created is that Puerto Ricans could not be trusted with democracy because we didn't know what democracy was, because we didn't know we had to learn to be democratic. And since we can be democratic, well, we had to stay a territory and the U.S. could do whatever they want. And that kind of logic goes back to what the, the Roman Empire used to think about the places they colonized them too. So not only those are very racist document, but that's, that's still the law of the land in Puerto Rico. That's still the law of the land. The law that, the, the law of the land that regulates the colonial relations between the United States and Puerto Rico. I don't know if Biden can do anything because they have to go through the Supreme Court the, unless, unless the Congress and the President of the United States are willing to change the colonial relation with the Puerto Rico or accept what many of us Puerto Ricans are trying to do for many years now, that we need to change that relationship. But going through Congress, I mean, going through the, the courts, it's not going to do anything un unless the Supreme Court says something different. I don't visualize a Supreme Court of the United States saying all of a sudden, well, you know what? No, Puerto Ricans are not inferior than we are, particularly with the Supreme Court that we have now in the United States. No, where Puerto Ricans are not uh, inferior than we are. I don't think any Supreme Court in the United States is going to make a decision saying that they are completely wrong they've been wrong for 100 more than 100 years and they need to do something to get reparations to puerto rico which is something eduardo galeano one of the great writers in latin america said many many years ago that colonizers need to pay reparations to colonies because of the problem they've had because of colonialism very well said very very well said i i couldn't agree with you more now, I want to talk, move, talk a bit more about the situation in Puerto Rico. The last time I had you on, we talked about the crisis of blackouts, of power yeah. going out. And I just want to get up a video briefly here of a protest that was going on after the privatization of Luma, which is the electrical company, and, and the, the U.S.-backed, the U.S.-controlled fiscal control board, imposed this privatization on Puerto Rico and said that it would make the company more efficient. And obviously it's not more efficient. You can see a lot of people protesting. Yeah. There were there were more and more blackouts. How has that situation changed? Has it gotten better or worse since no, then? It hasn't gotten any better. It's it's still going the same way. It's interesting because of that protest that you just showed there, we had a blackout during the protest. Oh my we God. We were marching through the highway and all of a sudden you can see anything because we had a blackout. So imagine that. I mean, they can be... They weren't even able to maintain it just to make it look like they're doing their job. It's still going the same way. They're still making the electricity power prices in Puerto Rico higher. They were supposed to be lower. They haven't been lower. Then it's not functioning the way it's supposed to function. Services are worse than they were before. And people are still taking the street to fight for that. Can you talk about, I mean, some of the, the campaign to try to raise attention to this? Yeah, I mean actually, yeah, well, thank you. Tomorrow, one of the elements that we're going to be covering in our protests is that one. Not only because the problem with the electrical company Luma that took over the electrical company who was public, uh, publicly owned, 
but because this is just some part of the whole neoliberal element in the government of Puerto Rico doing the privatization of different public spheres on the island. So what we're doing, what we're trying to do is take the Luma case, the Luma energy case, and deal with it with other things that are being privatized. You know, I remember in 1970s, 1973, when Pinochet uh, took over Chile and they killed Allende, and they started doing this experiments with the Chicago boys, they used to call them the Chicago boys, in, in, in Chile, and they privatized everything. I mean, in Chile was a perfect example of how good capitalism could work. And now we're saying what, what happened. I think that while other people in other places are doing something different, what the government of the United States through PROMESA and through the fiscal board, they're doing something very similar in Puerto Rico. They're doing, they're redoing the experiment, what they did in Chile. And they're related to neoliberalism doing the same thing. I tell you, for example, the, the University of Puerto Rico. Well, Democrats, the so-called liberals, are talking about making public universities cheaper. Even some people talking about making public universities free in Puerto Rico or raising prices for the University of Puerto Rico. So we're going in a way in, from to one direction and the rest of Latin America and the world is going in another direction. So, and, and this is my theory, which is they're doing basically the same experiment they did in Chile without obviously killing the thousands of thousands of people. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but, but in terms of ideologically what's happening, it's a very rapid process of privatization, very accelerated process of eliminating public services uh, and making them just go through the logic of financial capital. Well, you, you said thousands died in Chile and not necessarily, it's not necessarily the same as in Puerto Rico, but I should say, I mean, it's not as direct in, in the sense that the state yeah. is not directly killing Puerto Ricans. But if we look at things like Hurricane Maria, where there were okay. thousands of deaths that were not even reported, of I mean, there are there are a lot of deaths happening. They're just indirect. And because yeah. they're not because it's not a tank rolling over them, it's, it doesn't get coverage. We're not getting concentration camps where we're getting people killed because we don't have health services. We're getting people killed because we don't have ways to make a living. And on top of that, we're getting people just being kicked out of the country. I mean, the population in Puerto Rico has been going down for the last 15 years, very much. At some point, we have almost 4 million residents in Puerto Rico. We're basically at 3.1 now, which is and a very old population, actually. It's become a very old population. i give you an example. The average age for the college professor at the University of Puerto Rico, it's 58 years old. Uh, and that's old. That's old. I'm 51 years old. And people look at me like, say, oh, wow, a very young professor. I'm not. I've been teaching at the University of Puerto Rico 20 years now. But it's, it's become so old because young people tend to leave the country that we have a very old country. And that has problems. For example, we had COVID, COVID cases, and we've had about 4,100 deaths so far. Not as bad as other places, but not very good. Around 80% of all deaths are 60 years old and older. 
well, if you don't have such an old population, you probably wouldn't have so many deaths. So that creates a public health problem. So in that case, in that sense, there are people dying because of the problem. Yeah, and this is actually a great transition because I, you, you talked about neoliberalism, you talked about the Chicago boys. I wanted to, to point to an article that was recently published in the BBC and get your response, because I think it really shows the kind of propaganda narrative about Puerto Rico, mainstream corporate media, or in this case, British state media. This is from January. In Spanish, the translation is um, how Puerto Rico went from being an economic miracle. They love that term, public debt in the entire history of the United States. So can you talk about this idea that yeah, in the old the golden miracle. days of colonialism, things were so much better during the time of the economic miracle? Yeah, and I think that's very interesting because when you look at that supposedly economic miracle, what you had by that time in the middle of the 20th century, starting in the 19, late 1930s to 1952, when we get the, the, the com Commonwealth Constitution, the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, El Estado Libre Asociado, it's called in Spanish, which the actual translation is uh, free associated state, which is an oxymoron when you think about it. Yeah. So what, what we had basically, it's that New Deal policies that came along with new that new re, uh, accumulation regime called Fordism. I mean, that uh, consumer society and, and that whole New Deal policy, and, and it was brought to Puerto Rico. So it wasn't something that just happened in Puerto Rico. It's something that was happening. What happened after that is 30 years, 40 years after that, 25, 40 to 40 years after that, the whole process of capital accumulation came crumbling down. And it's been crumbling down. And what's happening, instead of being a crisis of overproduction, it's a crisis of having too much capital. Those companies got so rich that they didn't know what to do with their capital, which is completely different to what happened with the Great Depression in the 1930s that led to that Fordism. So that element, Puerto Rico becomes... Uh, a differentiated part of that U.S. economy at that time. So, like I said before, when in the metropolis you got a, you got uh, the flu in Puerto Rico, you get pneumonia. So that crisis that was dealt in a way in the United States, we're still dealing with that crisis. So it wasn't a miracle. It was something that was happening all over the world. Puerto Rico just got into it by being a colony with some problems that led to that to the crisis that we have now being even bigger. I'm going to give you an example. In the 1940, 1947, something, 1947, 1948, the unemployment rate in Puerto Rico was about 13, 14%. In 2022, the unemployment rate, unemployment uh, rate in Puerto Rico is about 12, 13%. So there's not much better than it was. I mean, it's a different kind of poverty. It's a very urban poverty. That means another type of problems, another type of uh, social problems that come with that urban development, industrial development that we have. And probably because we've made for some people so much capital, so much wealth, the level of inequality that we have on the island is a lot worse that the equality, inequality that we have 50 years ago. So it's a very different country 
that wasn't a miracle. It was something that was happening all over the world and it began and, and it started to happen in Puerto Rico as part of the differentiated part of that U.S. economy. When the crisis be, became clear and in the United States, you can see probably the 80s, the, the Reaganomics, uh, when Reagan tried to dismantle all unions, he activated the Air Force to work as pilots because Eastern Airlines pilots were on a strike. And you could see the shift from what was happening from the New Deal to a new type of government, to a new type of vision, a new paradigm about the world. That paradigm about the world in Puerto Rico, since we didn't have that development, that economic development, that crisis hits Puerto Rico even harder than it did in the United States. And we've never recovered from that crisis. So it wasn't a miracle, and we're still paying the price of that not miracle that we had. Yeah, and for me, it's striking because when I hear the term in Spanish, milagro economico, yeah. I associate that with, with the, at least the propaganda term, I associate that with uh, Puerto Rico and with Chile under Pinochet. They constantly say that, oh, apologies for the people. Maybe he did some bad things, but it was an economic miracle. Well, it's like, yeah, at what human cost? And also an economic miracle that excludes poor people and oppressed people and I mean, yeah, it's it's obviously propaganda, but yeah, I know, I know, I know. I remember we were president of the United States talking about Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua. Yeah, exactly. We, we know Ana Somoza is a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. So, so it's yeah, exactly. Like that. Yeah, and that's that shows the mentality of of people in Washington. So, as as we start wrapping up here on hell, I have a few more questions. One, I think we should engage with this debate uh, because there's a lot of people who maybe are sympathetic to the plight of people in Puerto Rico and say that there's no question that the U.S. government oppresses the people of Puerto Rico, but their solution is, well, just become part of the empire officially, become the 51st state. And one of the people who has been advocating for this is the current governor, yep. uh, Pedro, uh, Pedro Pierluisi. And he just tweeted on February 15th, he tweeted a call saying that he hopes that that they're working with the U.S. Congress to, to bring us the opportunity to, to achieve statehood. So he's calling for statehood. He is an openly pro-statehood governor. And what's interesting about him compared to his predecessor, Wanda Vasquez, is Wanda Vasquez, the previous governor, was very pro-Trump. She endorsed Trump for president. She was working with Trump. So she was portrayed as this kind of Republican allied figure. But my understanding is that uh, Pierluisi is seen as a very pro-Democrat figure. He's kind of allied with Biden. And now he's making this public call for statehood, for making Puerto Rico the 51st state. Now, I mean, my, my quick response to that is I'll say, we can look at, at another former colony that became a state, Hawaii, and we see now there's this, this crisis in Red Hill, which is this U.S. military base that poisoned the community and poisoned indigenous people. And they, they like stored, the U.S. military stored tons and tons of, gasoline like a few meters above the water aqu aquifer so i mean it's just an example of how little they care about the indigenous population so clearly for hawaii having statehood hasn't really helped them that much but i'm curious if you can respond what do you think about this this call for statehood in puerto rico do you think it's a solution to these problems that we've been talking about today? well the, the simple the simple answer to that is no i'm, I'm going to elaborate into that but i want to make it very clear no it's not a solution uh some people talk about the United States and Puerto Rico and 
because of the colonial relationship we've had, people tend to think about the United States as the imperial, the, 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 the big imperialist country that are so big and so strong that there's nothing you can do about it. And that, that, that's very normal. And that happens all over Latin America, even places where they're not an official colony of the United States, that kind of view, that kind of vision about the United States is still very important. There are some of us that not only think differently, that we have some experience living in the United States. And I, let me tell you, too, I loved living in the United States. Although I lived in Indiana, there's not a lot to do in West Lafayette, Indiana, where I lived. But I had a very good experience in the United States. But still, I know that there are some elements. I mean, look at the minority population in the United States. We have something like probably about 4 million Puerto Ricans in the United States as of now. Most of those Puerto Rican are not very are doing not doing very well. I mean, you can look at some Puerto Ricans. I mean, if you have if you're a medical doctor and you move to the United States, you're going to probably do very good. I'd probably do very good. I'm a college professor. I have a PhD from my university, uh, from Purdue University in the state of Indiana. I'd probably do very good. Most of the Puerto Ricans are not doing that because we are still a minority in the United States. And becoming a state does not change that fact. Becoming a state might change the fact that we have some more settlements of or, and some other US citizens that are not Puerto Rican coming to Puerto Rican and do another type of colonization. I keep saying, I keep asking my good friends that are pro-statehood, because I do have good friends that are pro-statehood. Not, 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 not too many of them, but I do have some good friends. <laughs> It's statehood a solution to being a colony or statehood is the combination of being the colony. I tend to believe that you don't stop being a colony by becoming more colonized and being a part of the United States as a state, it's being more of a colonized nation. And that's still a problem. And I'm not talking about just the element of dignity of being a part of it. And I'm, I'm talking about in terms of economic development, how are you going to develop the country if you can do other stuff? I mean, the same problem that we still have it now, and remember we were talking about that bargaining chip, we still, we're still going to have the same problem. We are still going to have the same problem. The federal minimum wage applies in Puerto Rico the same way it applies in different states. We're still having... Uh, very low salaries and, and, and not being able to pay for ele basic elements that we have. That does not change with statehood. It does not change with statehood. It does not change with independence from the get-go either. It has to come with some elements of social justice, policies that implement social justice into the Puerto Ricans. And if you're talking about being an independent, as I do all the time, it's not just being an independent country. Is it being an independent country that pays attention to those essential elements in Puerto Rico's Puerto Ricans' lives. Well, I think that's a, a perfect note to conclude on. Uh, we were speaking with, or I was speaking with Angel Rodriguez Rivera, who's the president of the Puerto Rican Association of University Professors. Uh, Angel, we're we're nearing an hour here. We're about to conclude. Are, are there any? final comments you wanted to make, any anything you wanted to mention? I think you did say that that in the next few days, today is Thursday, February 17th. Like you said, I think you said tomorrow on the 18th, there's going to be a protest and more this weekend. 
yep, tomorrow we're going to have some protests tomorrow. I assure you we're going to have thousands of people in the streets tomorrow. So you pay attention. And everybody who's watching your show, pay attention to that. It's been great talking to you. Anytime you want me to talk to you again, I'm right here. Thank you so much, Angel. It's, it was you. a real pleasure. And I also want to thank everyone who commented. I saw we had a pretty vibrant discussion. And and I want to say uh, thank you to especially a lot of there are a lot of comments from Puerto Ricans and shout out to all of you. Uh, I, I'm trying to do what I can to cover Puerto Rico more. And it's always a pleasure to have Angel and, and to have him share his his great wisdom and knowledge with us. So with that said, if, if anyone if you didn't check this out at the beginning and you want to if you're more of a listener, you can find this podcast as well, not just the video. And I'll be posting the podcast immediately after the end of the stream. So I want to thank everyone for joining us. I want to thank Angel, and we'll see you all next time. See you.